This is episode 157. As the title suggests, we are going to talk about Red Wolves. And more specifically, we are going to try to answer the question, is the Red Wolf a real species? Our guest is Peter Bruitt from the University of California, Santa Cruz, who is a co-author of an excellent paper titled Red Wolf Science and Identity Storylines in an Online Discursive Community. Very timely title. We all taking part of uh, one or the other type of online discursive community. By the way, Peter currently works in the University of Cumbria. And I gotta admit, I take Red Wolf over any other dog in the world. There are reasons for that. And while we talk about Red Wolves, there's impossible to talk about them without talking about all the other canid species, especially canid species in North America, all the subspecies of wolves and coyotes and maybe subspecies of coyotes and uh, the whole discussion about um, conservation and uh, recovery projects of red wolves. And while we talk about all those things, we also going to touch on environmental history, restoration of degraded landscapes, interpretation of scientific research, the role of science in society. And by the end, we try to answer a question whether red wolves are as good as done or maybe there is a chance for them as a species if they are indeed a real species. And before we go, big thanks to Steve Carver from the Wildland Research Institute who put me in touch with Peter. So without Steve, that episode wouldn't be possible. And if you're interested in the red wolves, you'll find many links for further reading in my newsletter. So subscribe to my newsletter. I always provide additional links and additional materials to expand knowledge uh, on the subjects we talk about in the podcast. So the link is in the description of the show, uh, newsletter.tomisoutdoors.com. And in the description of the show also, there is a link to the paper that I mentioned earlier uh, that Peter co-authored. And uh, yeah, that's it for this introduction. And now, is the red wolf a real species? Peter, welcome to the show. It's a it's a great pleasure to have you, and uh, thank you for your efforts for connecting because we had a little bit of a technical problems before that. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm really excited to have you here and talk about. Well, really, it feels like it's going to be two parts of the of the show, right? It's yeah, one I... we're going to talk about red wolf, which I need to admit is probably my favorite species of canids for various reasons, and then. Is from that we're gonna talk about your you know your excellent research um, that you made. I I actually printed out paper and I go oh, as wow. far as highlighting stuff in it. <laughs> so that was it. So Peter, welcome to Tommy Sodors. Uh, thanks a lot. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, eager to get into this stuff. Excellent. Maybe we can start with introduction to red wolf. Uh, red wolf as a species, if it is a species, because that's a part of a controversy, is even a species. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, how do you even 
approach this this subject because I but I'm sure you've done it no, more than once. So I'm gonna leave it up to you. Please enlighten us. What is Red Wolf? Yeah, well, so the, the first thing uh, that I, I I think that most of your um, listeners are probably based in Europe or the UK, um, but or Ireland, which is Europe. Uh, not many people, even in the US, know uh, the Red Wolf uh, was historically the um, large canid predator of the southeastern United States. Um, the scientific name is Canis rufus. And uh, a big adult would be about 80 pounds. So that's what, 35 kilos. Um, and they lived, um, it's, it's thought from about the state of Texas, so kind of the middle of the South, over to Florida, and then up to uh, about where New York City is now. Um, that's the, the basic idea of what a red wolf is. It's, um, they they, they look, um, if you're imagining a wolf, um, uh, that's got a little bit more of a ruddy, uh, or brown, um, color that's, that's about accurate. Um, although the gray wolf that most people are familiar with Canis lupus, um, is, uh, typically bigger and grayer. Why is the controversy with it that it is even a species? You know, like I, I heard you speak about the red wolf, and I heard you speak about the the the, the paper that we're gonna get into in in a, in a in a while. And you posted a picture of red wolf, and I was like, oh, it's a red wolf. It's, it's like I don't know why, but it was like clear to me. Like, so why why is where is that controversy even? comes about right because at some point they were declared extinct in the wild i think in the 1980 yeah 1980 um well the controversy comes uh when you get down to it from the fact that when europeans arrived in what's now the united states um they really only knew one kind of wild wild dog wild canid so anything that looked kind of like that was called a wolf that was that was the the word that they had for it um but what what we've come to realize that there is that there were a variety of wild canids um, living in uh, North America, still living in North America, um, and they're different from each other. Um, but um, and this is where the problem lies: uh, not so different as to really be that distinct. Um, there was red wolves in the southeast. Um, there's the the gray wolf uh, again, the one that is familiar to pretty much everybody who's going to be listening to this show um, in the West. And then in the Northeast, uh, there is an animal that most recently is uh, called Canis lycaon. I might be mispronouncing that. Um, that uh, seems to seems to have been a, a native to North America um, before gray wolves arrived across the Bering Land Bridge. Um, so so they, they, they had one wolf in mind and they found a continent that had three-ish. Um, the other thing that is is more difficult even than that is um, there's also the coyote Canis latrans, um, which is uh, historically kind of a medium sized um, animal, uh, forty pounds maybe, um, you know, eighteen or twenty kilos, and they they live mostly in kind of the middle and western part of the continent. Um, so there was this kind of what's what's been called a canid soup. Um, and uh, understanding that and, and deciding what is what is, is part of the problem um, because, and this is the second part, um, they can produce fertile offspring with each other. They challenge the idea of a species uh, concept that most people are familiar with. Even um, with, with gray wolves? 
Yeah, I'm, I can't think offhand of a specific case where a gray wolf and a red wolf um, interbred, but it certainly seems like gray wolves and um, the kind of northeastern wolf that the, lives in the eastern Canada now, and red wolves and domestic dogs, don't forget them, and coyotes um, can breed with each other and, and again, produce fertile offspring. So I, um, this gets into a much bigger topic that we could maybe get into, which is uh, the idea of hybridization. We we learn about animals, you know, as children, as uh, you know, this is a this is a horse, and this is a donkey, and this is a cow, and and so on, and a lot of a lot of the time that works pretty well, but it turns out that a lot of animals can uh, can breed with each other, and that's that's an important part of evolution. And um, when we make when we make policy, and when we make you know, are the the social animal, so to speak, the the idea of what it, what an animal is to us in our in our imaginations and in our society, our culture, um, we don't have a lot of room for those kind of blurry edges. Uh, then the question becomes: in the case of a red wolf, um, sh- where should we draw our lines? Is is this a really distinct species, or uh, or is it similar enough to coyotes or something like that that um, that we should think of them as one thing? They're much bigger than coyote. Well, not um, much, but they are bigger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's so. So either, um, either, yeah, they're they're bigger and they lived in a different area, so we should call them different things. Or, from the other perspective, uh, maybe just we should think of coyotes as a more kind of diverse, morphologically diverse. When you have the body, when I say morphology, I mean what the body looks like um, animal than we had previously thought. You know, maybe coyotes lived across a lot of North America and just the ones that lived in the Southeast were bigger. Um, there's enough uh, sharing of DNA, and I'm not a geneticist, so I can't get into this in a lot of specific detail, but that there's enough, there's enough uh, similarity there that some taxonomists uh, will argue that we should think of these as one animal, uh, and some will, will say that we should think of them as several. So it really gets down to what we want to call a species, how we want to define a species. And do you know, like, in terms of because there were there were like a uh, DNA research done on it as well, and then so they don't have like a so to speak coyote uh, or, or DNA, but there are like similar parts of it. Like, do do you do you have it? Like, if you if you can elaborate on that a little bit, because there's like a, this this term of ancestral mitochondrial DNA. To the best of my understanding, uh, they they do have some coyote DNA, but uh, the question is. Well, two questions. One, how much does that should that matter? I mean, we have Neanderthal DNA. I mean, I I do. Uh, most you know, almost anybody with European ancestry uh, does, um, but it doesn't make us Neanderthals. Um, the other question is when that coyote DNA uh, made its way into the population. Um, it, it's one of the going theories is that as red wolves are persecuted as every other big predator in North America or in the United States, what's not the United States was, um, that, that pressure led to interbreeding with coyotes perhaps relatively recently. Um, or maybe it was always there and they, they just shared, um, shared genes, you know, over, over the course of history. So yeah, it's a case of is, are they are they genetically distinct enough, and is their role in the landscape and the way that they look distinct enough that we can call them a, their own species? Um, and to quickly get back to when you asked about where the controversy comes from, um, I'd say that the issue there is that we make policy based on an individual species being endangered or not, 
And if we decide that this is, we're going to call this a red wolf and say that it's its own species, then it's extremely endangered. Uh, only a handful of individuals um, in the wild now, as you say, it was extinct in the wild as of 1980, um, and an animal that gets a lot of legal protection. Um, on the one hand, if you're going to say that, no, it's, it's, it's just a, a, another larger uh, kind of coyote, um, coyotes are, are hyper common um, and considered by many, many, many people to be a pest. Uh, and you'll find them in every state except Hawaii. Um, wouldn't be that surprised if they made their way to Hawaii. <laughs> I was um, going to say that. <laughs> uh, no, there's one swimming there right now. Um, no, I, um, uh, yeah, so, so it, it, whether we call it a species or not changes its legal status and then changes the way that people can, can act with it. Uh, can you hunt it? Can, can you get in trouble for hunting it? Um, what, what, is, what it is to us legally depends on whether we say it's one species or not yeah exactly and and then also that what is what is funny is that all that construct like you pointed out we have this this kind of like a somewhat artificial construct and then it's like okay if the dna of uh, of a coyote gets into the red wolf after the 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 european contact then oh it you know that's not a species but if the coyote dna get in there you know in a little ice age like some of the some of the um i think researchers think that it might be as old as uh, in little ice age then all oh, then this is species right and then you gotta ask the question like what is the difference what the difference does it make where the goddamn dna get into the animal it's there right yeah exactly um and then one of the one of the uh, big issues surrounding all of this is that then so to, to go back a little bit, they, after they were after they went extinct in the wild, they were reintroduced in the eastern part of North Carolina in 1987. Um, one of the first successful reintroductions of a, of a big carnivore, um, and eventually some of those animals bred with coyotes. So, are the should the pups be be protected or not? Um, and 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 what does it mean if we uh, if we allow this to happen? Um, an interesting context here, since we're talking about North American canids, is that as wolves of pretty much every, no matter what, which which one of the species you, or what you call them, as wolves disappeared from uh, the United States or most of the United States and much of Canada, coyotes, which again had been a you know, relatively small canid that lived in the the Great Plains and the Western um, mountains and deserts, um, expanded uh, to places that it hadn't been seen before. Uh, I'm I'm from New Hampshire in the Northeast, and when I was a kid in the 1980s, um, they were considered to be kind of a newcomer, and people would be like, "Oh, you know, we heard coyotes the other night." Uh, whereas if they lived, if you lived in Colorado, then you hear coyotes every night. So we have these animals now expanding across the continent, but also acting and even looking different from their ancestors, you know, evolutionarily, very very recently. Um, Eastern coyotes, sometimes they get called Eastern coyotes, and there's an argument that we're seeing the emergence, the rapid emergence of a new species. Eastern coyotes um, have picked up a certain amount of dog and even in Southern Canada, some wolf uh, DNA and uh, are filling uh, a niche that, that is a little closer to, uh, to the large carnivores um, in the East. Um, and how do, we, how do we decide um, to think about that? Um, and is it does it matter in terms of red wolf conservation that we now have uh, an animal that's not exactly a red wolf maybe but a lot like it 
present on the landscape. It's truly this canned soup. They all kind of interbreed with each other. And that, that like you said, that probably doesn't pose many problems for the animals it's themselves, but for the policymakers who needs to try to categorize this and say like this, 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 this is like a, a absolute uh, <laughs> nightmare. Here I say it. Uh, yeah. Peter, uh, th th tell me, so is the persecution of coyotes and, and canids in the United States play into that story? Is it is it important part of the story? And and if so, if you could, uh, for for the benefits of the listeners and viewers, like do the you know just say a few words about how would that whole you know bizarre and horrifying story unfolding there in uh, the lower forty eight United States, um, much like in a lot of Europe. Um, large predators were persecuted as a matter of culture and as a matter of policy, both in order to uh, try to stop predation on on livestock and so on, but also really as to some extent as a cultural priority. Um, these were villains, um, and I mean everybody in the broadly uh, Western European and beyond context knows the fairy tales about the big bad wolf and so on. But the same kind of thing applied to brown bears and um, pumas in the Americas and lots of other um, predators. So um, eventually, uh, we created, I say we uh, Americans, uh, created a, almost a continental scale absence of big predators. Um, I'm in uh, England right now, and the same thing is true on, the, on these islands. Um, there's in most we, of Europe at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's still true here. Um, we did, as, as a matter of policy, this is successful. Um, as a matter of ecology, uh, it brought a lot of its own problems. Um, so the red wolves were subject to this, just, just, just like gray wolves would have been. Um, and eventually, the population of red wolves uh, dwindled down to a little remnant in the bayous, the wetlands on the border between Texas and Louisiana. But by the time this happened, so here we're talking about kind of the 1960s, people's attitudes or in a lot of people's attitudes toward predators had changed. Um, and they decided when I say they, I mean the government, but also, um, the people who lobbied for change in wildlife policy, um, decided to, uh, catch all the red wolves that they could and try to put them into a captive breeding program, boost the population and figure out a way that they could then be restored to their, um, their native habitat in a way that would be successful. Um, so um, that's what happened. Um, they they caught, I've seen various numbers, but one of the ones that you see a fair amount is about they, 17 red wolves. Um, so those, in addition to whatever individuals were um, in zoos and so on, uh, were put into a breeding program. And eventually, uh, after a lot of interesting kind of ecological experimentation, um, figuring out, you know, if you put them in a cage and, and then open up the cage somewhere, will they go out? Will they thrive in this place? Uh, will they will will they mate? You know, will will they have will they have pups? Will you know? Does it work to take a wolf that's maybe lived or or been or even was born in a zoo and then try to make it a wild wolf again? So they they had some release programs on some islands. And this is your you're referring to the there was the, this guy Curtis Curley, I think. Yeah, so it was was one of the. I mean, there were a lot of people who were involved in this from um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and a variety of you know NGOs. You know what 
usually called charities in the UK. Yeah, I, I, I had a, like if 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 that's the one, I have a, like a fun fun data on this thing. So yeah, I, I think that there was like a fifty animals in the captivity, and they only found one that deemed to be pure, and they they trapped four hundred, and out of four hundred thirty four. 43 was recognized as pure, 17 was selected for breeding, three were unable to have pops, so it was like 14 out of 450. And the thing like they were they were trying to say whether they pure or not be based on the whole morphology profile, not even DNA. Yeah. Gee, man, I was reading that, it was like... Yeah, and this is one of the things that is, is coming back to bite us. Huh, now, the tools of, of uh, genetics were... Uh, we're not nearly as strong in the in the 70s and 80s as they are now. I mean, I mean that that's been a a part of science that's just exploded, of course. So yeah, morphology was about what what they had to go on. You know, how big is the individual? What shape is its you know is 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 its its skull? Um, you if you look at if you look at a red wolf, like a you know an undisputed red wolf, you'll see that the the head is different looking than a coyote's, um, and make decisions based on that. Um, and that was that was the best that they had at that time. Um, but now, when we expect genetic evidence for you know decisions like this, it, it's difficult to go back and 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 justify it because they don't have that evidence, and they didn't at the time. Yeah, it, it, another kind of interesting sidebar here is that you know some of those red wolf genes stayed out in the in the canid population in the southeast, of course, and just relatively recently they found a group of wild canids. I don't know if there's a good label for them. On Galveston Island, which is uh, in Texas, near near the city of Houston, kind of, um, that turned out to have a, a meaningful amount of red wolf DNA. So that's you know that's that's in play out, out there um, now. Um, anyway, while all this was happening, uh, the coyote expansion was occurring, um, and coyotes, uh, and and this is an animal that's that's well known. I mean, there's a cartoon character, you know, Wiley Coyote, um, who. Um, gets outwitted in the cartoon by the Roadrunner, uh, but in real life is very difficult to outwit. They're very plastic. Um, they they can adapt to many different uh, kinds of climate, kinds of setting. They um, they eat lots of different things. They're, they're relatively omnivorous compared to their um, larger uh, canid brethren. They they're basically impossible to eradicate if that's your goal, um, unless you have you know a, an island or a fenced property or something like that. Um, I remember reading that uh, coyotes are aware of of how many other coyotes there are near them, and if there's fewer of them, we'll have more pups. So, um, so yeah, so coyotes arrived, and across much of the United States, um, always as long as there's been a United States, uh, and this is true in the West, but it's true in the East too, are considered to be a, a pest, a villain. Um, an a, a, an animal that's not welcome. Now there are plenty of people who like coyotes as well, but um, there are a lot who who don't like them. Um, so in South Carolina, where I where I live now, I I work at a place called Wofford College. I got to get that get that out there. Great liberal arts school um, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. In South Carolina, uh, there's a policy trying to encourage people to shoot as many coyotes as they can. Um, if you um, there's what they call a golden ticket, where they they collar some number of coyotes, and if you get one of the special coyotes. Um, then you get, I think it's a free hunting license for life. I should check on that. Um, yeah. So, and I, it, as, as part of an effort to get people to, to shoot more coyotes. Now, as 
you can get into whether you know, I think this is good or not, but I, I would I would say that as policy, uh, it'll result in a lot of dead coyotes, but probably not a landscape that doesn't happen. So now you know the red wolf, uh, the red wolf scheduled to return uh, to, in 1987, and uh, they're with with the coyote tide approaching. They they picked Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge, um, which is as as the it says on the tin, a national wildlife refuge. So um, owned by the government, publicly owned, operated by the Fish and Wildlife Service in the extreme east of North Carolina, where it's a big peninsula called the Albemarle Peninsula that reaches out into the Atlantic Ocean. This is a, this site uh, was picked for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them was because it was far from the Coyote Tide. It was kind of as far east as you can go. So the hope was that they would reestablish there um, and be able to fend off coyotes when they arrived. Um, the other thing is there's there's very very little livestock farming. Um, that's obviously a source of conflict with uh, a lot of predators, and it's not. I mean, there may be some people who have chickens and so on, but it's not really an important part of the economy or the culture in the Albemarle Peninsula. Um, yeah, so they so they put the red wolves there, and uh, it was controversial, as you might expect. People who don't like wolves didn't like that. They still but, didn't like wolves. Oh, uh, well, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, they. they it's easy to think of environmental history in some ways as the environment was good and then it got harmed and then we've tried to fix it and now we like it better. But that's too simplistic. Um, all the different attitudes that have been present on the landscape in far into the past are still out there. Uh, there's you know, Some people like wolves now, but a lot of people still don't like them. And I, th- I think it's fair to say though um, that most people, to most people, you know, wolves are not a relevant part of their lives, but in a and they don't really care one way or the other. Um, but in a democracy, in a free society, uh, the people who do care a lot about any issue um, are the ones who drive that issue and, and make it happen. So wolf defenders and wolf critics are the ones who are really important in deciding what happens. Anyway, uh, the wolves were pretty successful there for about 15 years. They they And again, this they pioneered a variety of techniques of trying to boost populations in a reintroduction program they figured out that you could take pups from a zoo and put them in a den with a wild mother and she would rear them so you could get more di- more genetic diversity into the population that way um, and the population went up to about 120 or 130 by 2006 or so so it was it was considered to be a success um, and that's those are the terms in which i heard about it and and, and i you know, like a lot of people when i got interested in the environment as a child, wolves are one of the things that you you know about that have you know this 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 cachet and this presence to them in your imagination. Um, and so, I, I as I was thinking about what kind of projects I'd want to do after I moved to South Carolina, I thought it'd be interesting to look into red wolves. But as it turned out, right when I got to South Carolina in 2014, the red wolf population um, started to decline. Oh, and yeah, it dropped pretty precipitously uh the wolves died for a variety of reasons um but the the biggest one was bullets and part of the problem here is that coyotes were on the landscape now and in north carolina you could shoot coyotes whenever you want pretty much um and that's and that's true in a variety of states coyotes are species where there's really no no limit to uh, 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 the 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 when you were talking about when they were released at the time when there was no coyotes. Yeah, back um, then. In, 
and you said like fend off, but fend off it was like an idea of people who released them. I heard that they were they had an idea to create like a buffer, like a canid free buffer. Yeah. To protect the red wolves they released. I'd like to recommend the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes. Yeah, eventually. I mean, part of the hope was that the Red Wolves would establish territories and and be you know they're they're bigger and stronger than um, than at least the typical coyote, um, and would then be able to exclude them. Um, but uh, what started happening was that if a pa- if one wolf in a mated pair would get shot or hit by a car or something like that, um, the the bereaved wolf would sometimes mate with a coyote that happened to be around. So how to deal with that? The um, Fish and Wildlife Service tried, yeah, tried to make kind of a sterilized coyote buffer strip so to make sure that the coyotes couldn't uh, mix their DNA with the red wolves. But it, but it, it's the kind of thing that needs a lot of management, which which gets to one of the big questions in any kind of ecological restoration, which is at what point do you decide that it's restored enough that humans cannot be involved in managing toward a goal, um, or do you accept that people will always have to be part of it and and you know what? What do you? What are you? What's your end game? So that uh, effort went along, and and some people would th- thought that it worked well, and some people thought that it didn't work well. But um, as this was going, the red wolves kept dropping, and eventually there were only a handful left in eastern North Carolina. Um, a big flashpoint of this, and this is where I start. I decided what I was going to do my research on. It came when, uh, in in response to a lawsuit by some environmental groups. Um, they, they, uh, coyote, the coyote hunting rules in Eastern North Carolina, uh, were changed and made it so that you, I think that the decision was that you couldn't hunt coyotes at night, um, or use some other techniques so that people wouldn't basically shoot red wolves thinking they were coyotes. And if you see a small red wolf at night and you're intending to hunt coyotes, you know, you, you could very honestly think it's a coyote and then, and shoot it, um, there's been some some suggestion that there's some uh, an undercurrent of poaching. It's, this is a convenient excuse, but, but you know each individual situation is its own thing. Anyway, so that was 2014, and as I was looking into coyotes at the time, I saw a, an article with a uh, an airplane dragging a banner, and in a picture above this article, and the banner said "Google Red Wolf Restoration Scandal." So I did, and. Uh, what I found was a, um, a website, a hunting, a hunting and fishing website, where one of the threads was people discussing the red wolf issue, um, and that was one of the best ways to learn about, for me, um, the perspectives people had on red wolves and how how they matter. Yeah, that's that's was that's and and like you said, we we the the controversy are driven about the this discussion and and we talk about this in more detail like you know are they pure are they not pure because even in this program i think they they order to to kill or like they say destroy 
all the animals in the zoos that were deemed to be not pure because they there there was something like that, and then they released them. And I think then they they figure out that they missed after two generations they missed one pair of the of the ones that were not pure. And now okay, we have all these restored animals, so supposed to kill all of them now. So that was so we have I think we have a pretty clear picture of what it looks like what a what a red wolf is and what it is or what it isn't how the situation look like and now you so we we switching gears a little bit and we going to that to that paper and as always in those cases uh folks we're gonna i'm gonna link the paper in the in the show notes and also those of you who are not subscribed to my newsletter subscribe to the newsletter there's gonna be ton and more of links and stuff about red wolf in there so um Let's talk now about this world or or thing that you uncovered when you get into the <laughs> into the discussion. So yeah, so the um, the study that I eventually ended up doing, while well, my student Lawson Giles and I, I have to mention Lawson, he worked really hard on this, was uh, looking at the Red Wolf restoration scandal thread. Um, and the reason behind this is so what I I in my research I study the political and social parts of ecological restoration. Um, because um, when you get down to it, I think, whether to restore a degraded landscape or not, and how to do it and why to do it depends on what people want. Um, if people want a certain kind of nature, then they're going to try for that. And if they don't, then that it's probably not going to happen. So in the case of red wolves, I thought, you know, what what, what do people want? How do people understand the situation? And then how does that play out um, in the landscape? And as I got, as I got to learn that red wolves were uh, you know, maybe not a species or, or what were they? Um, what comes in there is basically science. If you really want to get down to it and argue that something is a species or is not a species, then you need the tools of a geneticist to, uh, to define it. Most people aren't geneticists. But at the same time, people are affected by the animals on their landscape. They, they are inspired in positive or negative or ways or both. Um, and it's, an, it's a part of their life, even if uh, they don't have the expertise to really answer the question with great authority. So how people understand science and look at science and scientists uh, then becomes a political issue. Um, and this is true with um, any environmental topic. I mean, the Climate change is the most obvious one, but anything that's got any controversy to it, you're going to have uh, people who are not scientists, but are, you know, are experts in their own lives, but don't have the the, the skills and knowledge to really you know, do their original research, um, still debating it. So we thought, um, how do the people in this thread understand the role of science here? Um, and, and part of the reason that we looked at the thread is it turned out that the thread was a very influential forum for Red Wolf restoration critics. Um, it's the 21st century and people get together online. And when they do this, uh, we found that on the thread, people were connecting to each other. Um, they were planning political action. They were sharing information about, about Red Wolves, about the state of research, about what was happening in the program on the ground. You know, then say, There's going to be a a hearing about this policy in this town. I'm planning to go. Do you want to go? 
sometimes po actual policymakers or people from the environmental charities would join the thread to share and talk about the thing. It, it, despite just being on a little hunting and fishing uh, website for the state of North Carolina that had almost a million views. Was that a pretty one-sided thread? So was, was that like 90%, you know, shoot the bastards and the rest, uh, you know, or how does it? Well, um, it was it was decidedly opposed to the Red Wolf Restoration Project. Um, that's that's fair to say. Um, but I have to say that the discourse was not uh, was not really you know in favoring uh, killing all of them or anything like that. It, it, it was it was passionate, but but for the most part pretty um, even in tone and kind of hoping to win politically more. Yeah, you, you can see some wild stuff on internet conversations, uh, but this was this was this was a little more kind of calm and professional and clear-eyed than that. I would I would say partly I think because you know some people use their own names, refer to knowing each other in in real life, um, so a little more accountability maybe than if than if it was just you know all strangers. Um, anyway, yeah, it was so it was a place where people who were critical of Red Wolf Restoration could get together. Um, so, and, and sometimes people who disagreed with them would come on and they would debate about it and that would develop the conversation. So I thought, okay, if this is the place to understand opposition to the Red Wolf, you know, how do, how do they understand the science of it? So Lawson and I went through and found all the mentions of science in this, uh, I had a gigantic PDF of, of the thread, um, all the mentions of science in this multi-year, by the time we were looking at it, it it was, it was, I think, six years worth of, wow. of comments. Yeah, um, that was that was the thing. It started out in twenty thirteen or fourteen, and was still active as of um, the early twenty twenties. So, uh, yeah, m more of a, in some ways, more of like a debating club um, than just a, a place where people blow off steam. So we looked and we th we thought, okay, if the issue is if it's whether it's a species, and then what that means politically. And to understand species, you have to understand genetics. Then, how does that play out in this this political uh, space? So, uh, what we found was that pretty people, whenever they when they would mention science, would they they agreed with science? They were in favor of science. Um, they they liked it, um, but they found that, that to them, science had been kind of corrupted. Um, they wanted to see peer reviewed science. Um, they they felt that that was really the gold standard, but the kind of science that the, the management or applied science that um, people like Fish and Wildlife Service biologists or um, people involved in breeding programs at zoos they felt that 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 was not um, that was not legitimate science uh, generally speaking, um, and uh, they that the, the the purity of, and the authority of science was then damaged by this. Was that was that an element of like you know if it's a if it agrees with my points of view that's a true science and if it's it's not aligned with my point of view that's garbage science or um, pseudoscience. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, people wouldn't say people wouldn't say it that way. Hardly anybody admits that they their point of view is what it is. But but I I, I would guess um, not knowing any of the individuals involved, but I would I, I think it's. Fair to say that that is likely to have happened. Um, if you go in with a preference, and this is true for people in lots of settings, um, then you're more likely to agree with things that, that fit your preference. Um, and again, like we've been talking about, 
uh, this is not like something like climate change denial where there's just overwhelming scientific consensus in one direction and disagreeing with it is is is, is like disagree is like thinking that there's some sort of a big conspiracy um there really is debate in the science and but that debate created and facilitated the discourse the storyline that um the red wolf's not a real species um because again most people aren't scientists um they uh you have to you have to come up with what you think without the kind of complexity that a professional would be able to put into it. So uh, we get storylines, and this is what Lawson and I identified that kind of crystallize the issue and become you know how you define the issue in a debate. And you'll find storylines about any complex thing. You know, if you ask somebody on the street, so again, I'm in England right now. If you ask somebody on the street what they think about Brexit. Um, you know, Brexit is an enormously complicated thing, but they'll probably give you a matter of a few sentences about here's what Brexit is about to me. Um, those are their storylines. They're probably not economists, most people, or or political scientists or politicians, um, but it has it has meaning to them. So yeah, the the storylines that we found were yeah that science is good and and right, but that it's but that it's being skewed somehow. That science really. They, they they thought says that red wolves are not a real animal, um, and they and they 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 shared and upheld some of the papers that uh, that that support that point of view. Were those papers supporting that point of view, you know, very clearly straight up, or whereas like as what because what I find is that often people are saying, oh, read this paper, it tells this. Yeah, and then when you read the paper, the paper says like, "Okay, we we took this sample and we done this, and this is what we find out within the context of this sample, and and so on." And then it turns out that people who are waving this paper as proving their point, they're actually often over interpreting what the actual paper was was saying. Was that the same case there? Um, I, to to some extent, I I I'd say so. I. I so there's a paper that that identified red wolves um, as being about three quarters coyote and one quarter gray wolf. Um, now, but th- but and then a legit paper. Um, but then, if you're another geneticist, you'd look at exactly like you're saying. You'd look at the methodology and their sample size and and say you know that their conclusions are are legitimate and they're not you know making anything up. They've done the right thing. But the, the way that they've Looked at it, is, you know, means that we should understand that in this context. But yeah, the while there was more engagement with kind of technical stuff and peer-reviewed papers than most uh, lay people are likely to give, so that that was something that I was I was struck by reading this thread. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to say that especially the people who came through and and viewed it or maybe commented a time or two but weren't that active, that they look at it and they would they would take that big takeaway and that would be what they learned about it. Um, so, so, so yeah, that's, I think that's fair. Now, again, I can't speak for all the individuals involved, but all those million views were probably not then people who went off and read all the literature, uh, but they were people who got to see this crystallization of the situ- of the, of the research. It's especially like you say about the storylines, you know, I, I, fo- I found this like a very, very good analogy. I never thought about this in, in, in the terms of the storylines and but, uh, actually it, it, it was a thread that I spoke about uh quite a lot recently about how even you know non-scientific points of view are getting a lot of traction and a lot of people are start to believing them because they're wrapped in this 
emotional story and and then when when that is confronted with like a dry facts and data well this is the data and this is like a you know bell curve and this is the you know then that doesn't carry any emotional load and 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 people you know like when the emotions are confronted with the, like a numbers the emotions going to win every single time so i think that was very very good point on it people are emotional creatures uh, um and and we are um there's we're storytelling creatures um there's a concept called homo narans the the storytelling ape um and that argues that that's something that distinguishes people and the the people make sense of their world um by by making stories around it which i i I totally agree with that perspective. Um, people see things as a story. Like if you if you ask people about almost any you know important issue, you know, oh, is your kid's school a good school and why? They'll start telling you a story about why they think it is or not or what. Um, so, so yeah, being being able to make a story about it and and have it resonate with with is is pretty effective. Um, and so then the next the next storyline became okay. So if science says the red wolf's not a real animal and all the scientists who work for the government or work for environmental groups or, or who do this work, you know, they're scientists. They know that. They must know that. If that's what the science says, then these are the people who actually know. Um, so what's happening? And then this, this raised the, the storyline that red wolves are a conspiracy. Um, that if that there is a, a, a conspiracy of, of pro red wolf groups uh, motivated, depending on, depending on who, Whose perspective this was, you know, motivated by emotion or or money or the desire for control, uh, and thus putting this 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 false animal that they thought was a false animal out onto the landscape. Um, and in this, it it joined the conspiracy theories that you'll find you know, in many parts of American politics, and really, it, I would I would suggest every human society has some idea about this that there's more going on than we know. Um, so this. And they, they applied this thinking to um, their sense of the role of science and what they what they thought of as the the twisting or corruption of science in Red Wolf reintroduction. Were you were you guys uh, taking part in that thread, or you were you were kind of completely only observers? Uh, no, uh, just observers. I mean, we we it, I didn't. I mean, aside from anything else, uh, by the time we got into it, the um, the thread wasn't as active anymore. The um, there was there was still some some conversation, but the, the situation had somewhat subsided. There were hard, there were hardly any red wolves left on the landscape, first of all. But as a researcher, um, I don't want to affect the data that I'm finding. And if I went there and asked people about it, um, you know, that's that's a different method, first of all. Um, but then I would be um, to some degree guiding um, what I found. So uh, we 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 left the thread at as it was and took it that way. Do you do you think that this sort of online settings are are effective for those type of difficult conversations? Is like the the overall, you know, whether o- overall it is a good thing that a lot of people can meet in this virtual space and exchange the ideas and talk about those things or do you think that overall it is, you know, only ground of spreading those sort of narratives or stories that are really hard to you know, check. Huh. Is the internet a good thing? Uh, <laughs> that's, I, I would, when you get down to it, I, I would say yes. Um, I think it's a good thing. Now it's uh, more, but more than a good thing or a bad thing. It seems to me that, that 
online discourse um, is a powerful thing that can um, can add a lot of energy and a lot of speed to almost any issue. Um, but I, I but I think that and maybe this is just the with the as I was growing up, the internet was seen as being like a hopeful prospect that it'll you know allow us to know more and connect more. And I, I still think that though that's not to downplay a lot of the negative things that are associated with the internet, but through, you know, for, through, for example, you know, this kind of the, the thread, a lot of the people who are on there have know more about conservation, have thought more about it, may hold the same views that they would have had and take the same political actions perhaps that they would have anyway, but um, it served to move things along. Um, so whether or not the Red Wolf restoration scandal thread was good for the Red Wolf or a good thing in and of, in and of itself, uh, I, I can't really say, but I think that spaces like it overall are are good. That they they allow they allow you to see more knowledge and perspective. It's just it's a case of you have to be a a critical consumer. I think of those perspectives and of that knowledge. I'm curious of your opinion on let's call it the interface between the science and policy. You know, I I don't want to you know bias your answer. I heard many opinions on that, but I think that that is also. That question is relevant in in the, in the light of your of your research because there that there was an impact on on policy. Yeah, I mean the the again the again the people on the thread were were politically active and brought you know were moved by these storylines and brought them to the political arena. Um, the role of science and policy is I mean there's a lot of research about this um, because you you very obviously need science in order to make well informed policy on you know almost anything the medical issues um, pollution. And, and so on. But politicians and administrative agencies have to make a decision to do something. They have to, they, they vote for a law or they don't. They, um, you decide to reintroduce a red wolf or you don't. You, you, you have to do something where, when, when the, the data may not uh, be that clear. Um, so in the face of scientific uncertainty, a decision still has to be made. And that's one of the things that's really difficult about it is um, you may have science where the researcher is not confident enough to, to advocate for a course of action, but not doing anything is also a course of action. So, um, this is, uh, so, so this is one of the big challenges really of the role of science in, in society. And again, in a free society, uh, people are affected by, by that science. I mean, the, this is not about the environment, but the thing that's probably in everybody's mind here is, is COVID and having to, every, everybody had to make their own decision and governments had to make their decisions uh, based on science that was evolving and controversial and, and do something or not. A lot of people, they think like the science is like this, this, this final thing that tells ultimate truth like this is a science it's like no no this is, this is you know you have a like you have a paper and then the same people you know they you're like oh no actually we were wrong you know there's something this yeah i mean the th the, i'd say that the the thing with science is that it's dynamic um it, it's supposed to be it's science is intended to continue to um study uh to study issues to ask questions and, and answer them the best way they can so i think that we have to we have to understand that science is not final, but it's it's for these questions, it's the best that we have. Um, if you have to make a decision on conservation, then understanding the science is necessary. Um, but you have to you have to realize that it may be it may be wrong. But even though it may be wrong, 
it's it whatever the science if there's a scientific consensus then that's your best bet i like this expression i think this is this is from from the us uh that the policy is made based on based available science yeah which yeah exactly um, exa- encapsulates the concept like this is the best we have at the moment yeah i mean so you so you 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 have to again you have to be you have to be a mix of of proactive and and humble i think which is which is difficult you should be critical and think a lot and and do your best to be well informed but realize that for most people you you can't know um the things like the genetic makeup of a red wolf in any technical sense um so you know the and that gets back to you know in the when in the 70s and 80s as the red wolf program was going underway um the morphological approach was the best that they had and they that was they they shouldn't have done anything else with as given the tools that they had available um but we can look back at that and, and think differently about it now is there anything else uh, in the in the paper or, or like you would like to talk uh to us about the the the, the paper or your research um well i would say that we we human beings have to decide what how we're going to live with other species what other species we're going to share spaces with whether it's you know the, your pet at home or whether it's the landscape you know big scale in which you in which you live um and um then in what terms are we going to relate to those species so um a lot of people are accustomed to having a landscape with no predators or no no significant predators no big predators we we now see that this has ecological consequences uh in terms of things like overpopulation of deer um which is something i've heard a lot about since arriving in the uk and that and that doesn't even get into you know, some of the more cultural or moral issues that people will raise about allowing things to go extinct and there's a lot of people have a powerful sense that that's wrong um or or and think that you know, predators are good not um so how will we reach a a position of comfort I guess or at least acceptance of other species in which ones in eastern north america we are in the process of trying to figure out how to live with predators around at least eastern coyotes and I haven't mentioned them because they're omnivores but black bears are more abundant in a lot of places than they used to be alligators in the southeast are more or less constant presence in a lot of, in a lot of coastal communities uh, we have to decide um and and sometimes maybe change and that's difficult We started with Red Wolf and um I want to close it with Red Wolf as well. So what is the current situation of of Red Wolf? Are there you know I I I way too often ask him a question about the you know species name and then are they done? Are they as good as done or is there a hope? Well, um really depends on what you're hoping for. Um the current situation with Red Wolf. So this is where politics comes in. If you have an administration that's sympathetic to Red Wolves, then you'll have uh Fish and Wildlife Service and so on that's going to be more sympathetic as well. I think it's fair to say that I'm not sure if Joe Biden himself has opinions on the matter but that the Biden administration is has has been more supportive of the Red Wolf program than the Trump administration was. Um so the numbers have ticked up a little bit. There's some more uh more activity in trying to boost the Red Wolf population in eastern North Carolina than than there was in 2018-19. Um having said that and this is this is my opinion um I I don't see how the red wolves will establish sustainably in the face of political opposition and um the coyotes on the landscape um I 
I don't know if we'll keep kind of a stronghold of them and that'll be that. I, I don't think that they'll, I don't see a scenario where they can expand out into the rest of the landscape and, and become the predator in Eastern North Carolina and beyond again. I think that um, the Eastern coyote is going to be the dominant predator in that part of the world for the foreseeable future. Um, maybe there'll be a little group of red wolves um, and maybe maybe they'll even find some other places to put them, but I don't think that they'll displace coyotes. Look, I always finish with the question along the lines, if you had a magic wand, right? What would you do for Whoa. Red Wolf and whatever? But I feel like this is a even oh, more tricky question than usually because, like, if you had a magic wand and just dump a lot of uh, purebred Red Wolf, they would go out and and hybridize with goddamn coyotes anyway. Well, um, if you had it, this is this is one of the things that's really an interesting question. If you had enough of them, um, then there's a good argument that they would. Uh, that they would establish packs that would exclude coyotes. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that there are going to be enough of them in, in, in a broad enough landscape to to do that. Um, if I had a magic wand, I would. I, yeah, I, I think I would make it so that we had we'd had a, a larger pool of unquestioned red wolves. That that the red wolf um, species identity was was harder to dispute and simpler to understand um and that and that they were were able to establish themselves as as a predator that more or less dominated the landscape rather than being under pressure from the swarm of coyotes so i don't know how many that would be um but i think that that would make for probably a better ecological outcome um and certainly a simpler one Thanks for that. I'm gathering that this is uh, there is a there is a there is a still a little bit of a hope with uh, uh, about those red walls, but we really don't know what's going to happen. It's hard to say what the future holds. There may be some version of the wolf back on the landscape, but we'll see. It's a very dynamic situation. Um, oh, another thing I'd have to note is that political receptivity, not just by politicians, but by regular people. Um, matters a lot as well. Um, if people really want wolves, then they will support management and that allows for that. And that's true in any place that has wolves, not just uh, North Carolina. So um, the human target, I think, uh, if you're trying to support some outcome is the key. Peter, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.